0: Welcome to another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. You're about to hear a powerful interview, part of the Boiling Frog series, co-hosted by Sabelle Edmonds. I hope you've already visited her new website at boilingfrogspost.com. Today's conversation is with a real American hero. He used to work for the phone company AT&T. And Mark Klein discovered the secret room in San Francisco where the NSA continues to divert our emails and telephone calls on a massive scale. And I believe it's a severe violation of our Fourth Amendment rights under the Constitution. But the Obama administration has extended the bad legal precedents established under Bush and prevented any litigation that would allow us to know the scope of this unprecedented monitoring of the American people and their communications, without court orders, without probable cause, violating, as I said, the Fourth Amendment and the explicit terms of the FISA law until those were amended in the summer of 2008. I hope you'll share this podcast with as many people as possible, because most Americans seem unaware or unconcerned that this level of monitoring continues to this day and i encourage you to order mark klein's book it's called wiring up the big brother machine and fighting it and it's available only at amazon.com he self-published it because no publisher will touch this information Frogs. Everybody knows that the days are loaded
1: NSA's illegal domestic wiretapping, FBI's national security letters, state secret privilege, TSA's one million-plus no-fly list, persecution of government whistleblowers, perpetual wars, rendition and torture. Can you feel the water boiling?
0: Welcome to the Boiling Frogs. I'm Peter B. Collins with Sabelle Edmonds, and today our guest is Mark Klein, the former AT&T technician who broke the story, exposed the wiretapping that was underway here in San Francisco. And he's published a book called Wiring Up the Big Brother Machine and Fighting It. Mark Klein, welcome to the Boiling Frogs. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to uh, share this conversation with you and Sabelle Edmonds because uh, I have the deepest respect for you and Sabelle for your personal commitment to our Constitution and to the risks that you took to try to expose the wrongdoing and clear violations of our constitutional rights that uh, you witnessed and uh, observed. And so it's it's very special, I think, to have the two of you together on this podcast today.
2: Thanks. I'm glad to meet Sybil on on the phone, at least, for the first time.
0: Well, and I imagine that uh, our fictional minder, Benny, over at the NSA is listening very intently to this conversation. (laughs) And I want to reference uh, for listeners who'd like to hear the full, detailed story of Mark Klein's experiences. uh, He sat for a 90-minute exclusive interview with me a few months back, and it's available on my website at peterbcollins.com. Podcast number 19, again, at PeterBCollins.com. And, Mark, if you would, uh, sketch briefly the experience you had working for AT&T and how you ended up in San Francisco and how you discovered what was going on in room 641A in an AT&T building on Folsom Street in San Francisco.
2: Right. Well, I worked for AT&T as a communications technician most of those 22 and a half years. And I started in New York and then I ended up transferring to San Francisco and and throughout that time they were laying people off. I was always one step ahead of being laid off. Um, uh, in 2002 I was in this San Francisco office and we got this strange email announcing that the NSA they actually said the NSA was coming to talk to one of the management level technicians for a special job, which they wouldn't tell us about, of course. Anyway, uh, as it happened, the guy came, and I opened the door for him, and he spoke to one of the management level technicians, and it turned out, as weeks went by after that, that the scuttlebutt came came around, that they were building the secret room over at Folsom Street, also in San Francisco, where this guy was going to be working. And so I knew that right away that this was an NSA room being built inside a phone company building. uh, AT&T had three floors of this building. The rest of the building at the time was SBC, which is a local company. Mm -hmm. They've since merged back together. Um, So I knew right away that this was wrong, because I remembered from back in the 70s, the NSA has not, does not have a charter to do domestic spying.
0: That's right.
2: The FBI does that, um, and they need a warrant to do it. Uh, so, what was the, I knew, so I knew right away the NSA should not be there. As it happened, the following year in 2003, I was transferred into that office, and my primary assignment was to watch over the work in the um, Internet room. And so, and doing that and working in that office, I found that in the internet room, there was a piece of equipment called a splitter, which was connected, as the engineering I had got hold of showed, the splitter was connected down to the secret room on the floor below. And through the splitter was running the main circuits for the data stream of the internet, everybody's internet traffic. Email, web browsing, uh, voice over Internet, phone calls, pictures, video, whatever goes across the Internet. was going across these lines, and I had the documents which showed this. And the documents also showed that they were tapping into these lines and making copies of it, blind total copies, no discrimination whatsoever, just total copies, were being sent to the secret room. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I also found... From talking to people that, um, and one of the documents showed that there were other secret rooms, and and uh, I I found out from firsthand talking to technicians that well, some of them mentioned were in San Diego and Seattle and San Jose and Los Angeles, and documents one of the documents mentioned Atlanta, mm-hmm. and later when some experts looked at this, they figured figured there must have been fifteen or twenty rooms considering the scope of this layout.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Anyway, the gist of it was that they were basically copying the data running across the internet.
0: And and Mark, uh, without getting too technical, these fiber optic circuits could not be tapped or intercepted just by putting jumper cables on or uh, diverting the stream uh, through a, a box of some sort. This is an optical splitter And I'm looking at the schematic that you published uh, in your book. Uh, Are are these splitters common? Are are there other uh, activities or uh, applications for a splitter that wouldn't involve the diversion of traffic to, uh, for example, the NSA?
2: Um, Splitters can be used for common, ordinary purposes. Um, The most common analogy people would be familiar with is a TV splitter in your house?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: If You're getting cable TV, and you're getting all the channels in your living room, and you want the channels to be available in your bedroom. Well, they put in a little TV splitter that splits the signal on the cable. That that handles electrical signals, though. The splitters I'm talking about handle fiber optic, laser light signals, so which carries thousands of, thousands of times more information and um generally there are they can be innocent reasons for putting a splitter a splitter on a fiber cable but generally they don't like to do it because it means a loss of signal level and it creates extra problems for them mm-hmm. um but if you're say, distributing the same signal to several locations they might use a splitter to to do that um But generally, they don't want to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, Mark, one of the very interesting things, and we'll go into more detail about this later, but you were in a novel position because you were aware of what was going on. You came into possession of some of the documents related to the technical changes that were made to implement this diversion. Yet uh, you could not be silenced by the government because of a security clearance the actual key technician who was doing most of the work in the secret room did have a security clearance, is that correct? That's right. And so he was bound by those uh, confidentiality and secrecy agreements and that's what puts you in in this unique position. So um, as you became aware of this and it bothered you and, and troubled you and you were able to collect some of these memos that were just laying around, what what was going on in your head and what finally made you decide to try to share this information with, uh, say, the media or some of our elected officials?
2: Well, looking at the um, the engineering documents, I could see right away, they were copying everything. I knew it was going into an NSA-controlled room, which us technicians could not enter, which, by the way, was a violation of our union agreement. Um and I knew this this could not be legal this must be le- illegal because they're not they uh, in order to do this kind of thing, first of all, they wouldn't get the n s a to do it, it would be the FBI and you could not get a legal warrant that would say, "Give me all the emails in the country, which is basically what they were collecting uh, a warrant as you know, has to be specific as the Fourth Amendment calls for, have to say specifically. Uh, the place to be searched and the and the persons or things to be seized mm-hmm. that's to put a limit on government uh, abuse and and looking at the documents and I know this equipment, there was no selection at all going on the initial split; it was just a copy of everything mm-hmm. so what went into the government room was everything, so that's illegal right there, and they can claim all they want to doomsday that they later select out the legal stuff. But that's irrelevant. Uh the point is they first get everything. And that can't be legal. And then so I knew it was illegal right then, but this was a scary time and I didn't say anything. I just took note of it and when I retired in two thousand four I took the engineering documents with me. Mm-hmm. In two thousand six, uh late the end of two thousand five New York Times revealed that there was this Warrantless spying going on, and uh oh and I also should mention should mention that uh when I first saw these this secret room stuff in two thousand three, this was when there was this big up you know uproar in Congress over the total information awareness program
3: mm-hmm.
2: which which was discovered, and that was also about government collecting all the electronic information they could about you.
0: And TIA was uh, data mining. It had been started at the Pentagon under John Poindexter. Right. We were led to believe that it had been terminated, but they really just changed the name and moved it to a different uh, office. That's right.
2: <clears throat> so I, I, when I heard about that, I figured this must be connected because it was just too coincidental that they were installing this room at about the time that that whole TIA affair blew up. So, all right, so getting back to... And in 2005, the New York Times revealed this stuff. So I knew that this is what they're talking about. This is completely illegal, warrantless uh, wiretapping. Mm-hmm. And so I decided in 2006 to bring it forward. And I went through various media. There's a whole story, which is in my book, about how I went to the Los Angeles Times and they were planning a big story. But then after they talked to. The the NSA director and the director of national intelligence, uh, they killed the story.
0: I want to go into more detail on that in just a moment, so save that for us, please.
2: All right. right. Um, Then I have other experiences like that uh, being with uh, 60 Minutes as well. Uh, Then I brought the information to Civil Liberties Group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who by coincidence was uh actually preparing a lawsuit against AT&T when I walked in the door I it was just a coincidence so they were very they were very excited about my information because this was very concrete specific evidence and um eventually I became a witness for their lawsuit in um April 2006 and um Then it took off, and then it got a lot of publicity at that point. Mm
3: -hmm. The government
2: stepped in to to seize the documents at that point to see if there was any super-classified information that they needed to guard in the documents. And ironically, they turned the documents back to us because they couldn't find anything classified in them, Um, (laughs) which was another um, helpful thing to us because we could prosecute the whole case without any classified information. Because I don't have any security clearance. I didn't violate any security rules. The documents show, documents that the documents are not classified and they show that they split off this information on the internet to a secret room. And we don't need to know the classified information about what they do in their secret room to prove that they did something illegal. The illegality happened at the splitter. Um, but the government wanted to kill this case, and they tried all kinds of means to, to stop it. And first they tried to invoke state secrets, and I'm sure um, Sabelle Edmonds knows a lot about that one.
0: Yes, yeah, she oh, does. Exactly, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, have, we happen to have a, an unusual judge who wouldn't buy that story. And the judge basically said, uh, and he was a conservative judge, Judge Vaughn Walker, he basically said if there's any secrets to this court, can guide, can guard the secrets, in private sessions in court. Um, so he would not. He, he had denied the government's motion to dismiss on state secrets grounds, um, and that was a big blow to the government's case, because they had they had been hoping to get this case thrown out before anyone could even look at it. Mm-hmm. So that led to the next phase in the whole struggle. Where the government decided they got to derail this case somehow, and they ended up go- eventually going to Congress to find to get Congress to grant immunity to the phone companies. That took two years, and they eventually got that, and that led to the dismissal of the
1: case.
0: Mm-hmm. Sabelle, go ahead.
1: Uh, I want to go back to the to the to the media and uh, I'm very familiar with the experience you had with the Los Angeles Times uh, editor and the mm-hmm. reporter. And uh, one of the uh, dilemmas we are facing as the National Security Whistleblowers Coalition is where to send some of these uh, whistleblowers or people who want to blow the whistle when it comes to the media, because we have been encouraging people uh, who have seen and witnessed firsthand uh, illegality, criminality, to basically uh, disregard the, uh, their clearance and uh, anything else uh, in terms of uh, the agreements they have signed with the government and just come forward and put the information out mm-hmm. to the public. But one of the problems we are having is it's very hard to know and to trust uh, uh, uh any media outlets or any particular reporters to send these whistleblowers to.
3: Uh,
1: So what would you say uh, to to people who would come to you and say, okay, Mark, uh, here it is, and I have this information, and it is, you know, certain illegal operations or or a criminal case. Who do I go to? Where do I go? What would you tell those people?
2: Well, that's a hard one because there's no guarantees. I would say, you know, first of all, if you're going to be a whistleblower, there's a good chance you'll lose your job. I was wishing because I decided to retire first before I did any whistleblowing. <laughs> so um, uh, they couldn't get me on that score. Um, who to go to? Well, <clears throat> it's hard because you've got to convince them and at the same time convince them to take a chance.
3: Correct. Right.
2: And, um, and they're largely a, a lot of chickens.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um well, but but even that is a little too generous, Mark, because yeah. uh, go into detail about your approach to the Los Angeles Times and how instead of honoring the confidentiality that they extended to you as a source and publishing the information, perhaps uh, guarding your identity in the process, instead of doing that, which is the journalistic approach that one would have expected... They turned and gave your information to the top officials in the government and left you hanging in the breeze. That's true. Um,
2: That made me, put me in a real bad spot because I didn't have any other publicity, I didn't have any publicity to speak of at that point. Um, And that's, when I figured that they were going to kill the story, I went to the New York Times. And that too was a risk. Because um, they uh, stalled, and I know the New York Times, the original expose in December two thousand five, they had sat on that story for a year. Right after they had talked to the government about it, and the government, of course, counseled them not to run it, and they didn't run it. And they had the story before the two thousand four elections, and they didn't run it. So, I mean, there's no hard and fast rule that you can say you know do this and it it'll work but i do i do think it's true that uh... you're in a safer situation once you can get the story to break out because they're they're less likely to go after you because then they're afraid of publicity the government is afraid of this kind of publicity and once it's out there they don't want to go after you um... generally speaking but even then I wouldn't say you're guaranteed, but I would say once it's out in the public, certainly, um, it's you're in a safer camp. Um, and I think that's, what, that's certainly why AT&T, who could have sued me for taking company documents, they demanded the documents back, and I refused, and they did nothing. Why did they do nothing? Because they didn't want to go to court. They wanted to get out of court. They knew they were guilty, and if they sued me, then we could demand discovery in court and call witnesses, and there'll be a whole new level of publicity that they did not want. The same story applies tenfold to the government. They don't want this publicity.
1: Well, they need not to worry that much because their tentacles within the mainstream media is uh, basically blacking out many stories. Like right. yours, like uh, a lot of uh, many members, we have National Security Whistleblowers Coalition, and uh, and uh, and the, I think one of the biggest risks ends up being, let's say, even if a person has decided, okay, this is a, I'm going to do it, and yes, the publicity in a way will provide me a layer of uh, with a layer of protection, but then they would go and they would share witnesses, documents, etc., with a reporter, and Not only that the story doesn't get out after that, won't get out, they actually get into trouble because the reporters or the reporters' editors have actually notified the agency in question. That is the the scariest scenario, and we have had firsthand experiences with that. I have had firsthand experience, and one of these experiences I have talked about without naming names, but I'm going to go ahead and blow the whistle here, and said example, as you did with the with the um, Los Angeles Times, it was, Vanity Fair put a piece out there on Dennis Hester in 2005, right. and they had several sources, and they listed those sources, and there was this blackout by every single media outlet, and I'm talking about on the left, on the right, by everyone. This incredible silence, eerie right. silence. Okay. A few months later, The election is coming up okay, in November, and I just could not stand it. I mean, here's Dennis Hastert running for office again, and his constituents are going to go and vote without knowing who this guy is. I mean, you're looking at this huge amount of responsibility. You feel, you know, nodding at you. So I went and I convinced three FBI agents, okay? Two of them had never blown the whistle, had never come out publicly. To, for, for, for this, for their conscience, for, for the importance of it, to go on the record for the first time. okay? Mm-hmm. Go on the record with documents, with yeah. everything, details, and disclose this thing on hazard because two months later, two months after that, they were you know, going to have this. They were going to go to the booth and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and vote. So I asked around, and here I'm supposed to be the knowledgeable one. One of the people that I trust a lot told me, well, the best place to go is McClatchy, okay? Right. All right, good. And who in McClatchy? Well, because it involves D.C. politics, here is a contact information talk with the uh, bureau chief for Washington, D.C. Yeah. Gentleman's name is Jim Asher, right? Mm-hmm. It took me a lot to convince these agents, okay? To, to come forward and they said okay they will do it once on the record they will just do it once okay and actually one of them said well I will tell you this they will not run it they will not publish this because it touches you know not only Hazard but many other people right I set up the meeting and I have email records of all this okay Between Jim Asher and these agents right in a coffee house in a particular location the hours works out we meet there and for the first time these guys. They think, okay? Not only that they gave them information, they shared certain documents. They actually put forth another witness that I didn't even know about who had first-hand information on this. Yeah. Uh, after that meeting, nothing happened. A day, two days, five days, ten days. My phone calls, their phone calls, nothing, okay? Then I started doing some real research and I started talking to people and a person that you're very familiar with, Mark, uh, and and you have you know this person. I'm not going to name him who knows McCleche very well. He said, Well who did you guys talk to? MacLeach. I said, Well, this person. Said, oh my god. His nickname is Darth Vader. <laughs> he was he was stationed and was given that position for one purpose only, because McClechey took over uh night riders. That's right. And They put that guy there to make sure that Jonathan Landay and another reporter won't get out of control. And this guy is a government tentacle, and he's one of the dirtiest guys you would come across. And here I just named him, and I'm doing it because I have email records and I have three FBI agents who would come forward and vouch. And guess what? November came, people went there, and they voted, and Hastert got reelected. Okay. This is. These are the kind of situations that that that. And then the agents basically blamed me. They said we trusted you. Okay. Well, two of these agents were already retired. But what if they were still working? Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is the sorry (laughs) state of our media. And McClatchy is not even considered like one of the big mainstream big bad guys. Macleishy's has the reputation of, oh yeah, they are liberal and yeah. they are good, but not yeah. everyone in Macleishy is, and and yeah. this is this is what you get. So it's very difficult to uh, forward uh, whistleblowers to trustworthy reporters or publications because where are they?
2: Being a whistleblower, particularly if you're coming out of the government in a national security environment, is very risky, <clears throat> and there's not a lot of places to go to. And I think it's generally true the government has a thousand different ways to keep their fingers on all the different institutions of society, including the media. By getting back to the Los Angeles Times story, one of the things that came out there was when they were considering the story that they were writing and they were showing it to the government officials, they were also talking to Senator Feinstein's office about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so people like her, and she was working against me. She was trying to get the lawsuit killed, which she eventually did.
0: Well, and let, me, let me just yeah. jump in here, um, Mark, and read a couple of quick quotes uh, from your book. Sure, because Steve Cash was Feinstein's uh, top uh, intelligence uh, uh, consultant or uh, advisor. And you have a note here from uh, February 3rd of 2006. Right. Steve Cash called. Is very interested in the documents, wanted to verify that uh, they are indeed tapping into fiber and copper circuits. Told him I can only verify fiber. He goes on, and you say uh, he wanted to know if I know they were indeed doing unlawful interception. I said I don't have first-hand evidence of that, I don't have a security clearance, but I know only people with NSA clearance could go in that room. And uh, he said he would be in touch with me on Monday. And you write, but I never heard from him Monday or ever again. And I was unable to get through to him or the senator. And later, my well-connected attorneys ran into the same brick wall. So here we have this collusion between Feinstein, who I don't have respect for when it comes to intelligence, and she's now chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, She's been an apologist for the NSA, has worked to try to legalize the law-breaking uh, that uh, that they did and the phone companies collaborated on. And uh, so we see this ugly specter that you, a confidential source, have been exposed by both your United States senator and the Los Angeles Times to John Negroponte, who was the national intelligence director at that time. And uh, surprise, surprise the L.A. Times decided they wouldn't publish that story. And then you saw this, you certainly were were afraid of what might happen to you as a result, and you were kind of feverishly trying to get some publicity because you felt that was the best way to protect yourself. So then you're kind of uh, brokering this back and forth between the L.A. Times and the New York Times, And tell us what happened with these star reporters, Eric Lichtblau and James Risen, who covered the NSA for the New York Times.
2: Well, they seemed to be very interested, and I believe they were, in in covering this. Um, And there was a flurry of excited phone calls, and then there was a strange silence for a few weeks. And um, I didn't hear from them. And I figured they were having some problem with their editors um who were reluctant and um so they didn't I didn't get callbacks from them until we suddenly when the government I told you when the government intervened and seized the documents when we were were filing the lawsuit my you know my declaration for the lawsuit and the documents that went with it the government came in and seized them to look at them before they gave them back when the government did that that inadvertently, inadvertently for the government, attracted a lot of media attention because that seemed to confirm for the media that there's more here than just more client story if the, if the government wants to see these documents. So we suddenly got a bunch of publicity, and then the New York Times called me back, and then they did a little story, and then they did an editorial and a bigger story. So that was my breakthrough. I did get finally, a breakthrough with the New York Times in that sense, although Mm -hmm. it was reticent and slow in coming,
0: And on page 18 or something. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm.
2: And then they never called me back after that. You'd think after they ran the story where they talked, they showed the documents to four experts, and all four of them concluded this is some kind of secret, probably illegal, large government surveillance operation. And so they ran that. And then they never called me back to ask me more questions. Very strange, right? So, I, I get the feeling at the times they were conflicted. Their editors were conflicted and being, you know, thrown about by this. And so they did, at least they, they gave me that little, initial little breakthrough, which helped. But I kept running into that kind of stuff, which indicated to me not only reticence on the part of the editors, but pressure from the government. Uh,
1: Mark, I have a question on the New York Times because yeah. uh, if I'm. I, I I believe I'm correct that it was New York Times who actually hired that same editor from the LA Times and now he is the uh right. C. B. Road Bureau chief for New York Times. Do you think that's a coincidence?
2: Yeah, that's pretty funny. Well that, that came later. Um uh, the um the let's see, what was it? The ABC Nightline, when they gave broadcast my story uh in two thousand early two thousand seven they followed up on my story about the L.A. Times, and they investigated, and they, and they found out it was true, and, that they'd, and they found out that the guy who nixed my story was Dean Baquet, B-A-Q-U-E-T, I think it is, mm-hmm. uh, or, or Q-E-T, I forget, uh, who was later hired to be the Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a, it's a small club, you know. Uh, Certainly. The, the New York Times came out somewhat better because they did at least print something. But they all move in that same Washington circle and are under the same government pressures, you know. So I'm sure that, that explains the New York Times lead-footed approach to this thing. They, they were very, very reluctant, and then they finally did something, but it was like the absolute minimum. But it was something, at least. Uh, it, helped, it helped me.
0: Now, now, let me ask you, Mark and Sabell, to compare notes, because uh, you two are members of a club that I'm not. Yeah. I have never been interviewed by 60 Minutes. And, Mark, you told me previously mm-hmm. that they recorded an interview with you and uh, demanded an exclusive, and that, in essence, this silenced you For, what, six to nine months as you waited for CBS to broadcast that piece?
2: Yeah, this is another one of those suspicious uh, events. In the fall, in the summer of 2006, we had gotten a bunch of publicity, and we were approached by several national TV groups to to be the first out the gate with the exclusive TV interview with me. And 60 Minutes was right up there fighting for it, so we, we gave it to them. And they flew me to New York in September 2006. I was interviewed by Steve Croft. And then we waited. And we waited. And we waited. And every month they had another reason why it's not now, it's going to be next week. Or, oh, uh, we have to run this now. And they always had an excuse for postponing it. Oh, after four, after four months, we gave up. And we went to ABC Nightline, who, who did something and aired it. And, and also PBS Frontline. Also, at the same time, um, and CBS, um, um, sixty Minutes never aired that show, and I i suspect it was killed for political reasons, but they couldn't tell us that, so they never, so they just kept putting us off. They never came up with any good reason.
0: And so Sabel what, what was your experience with sixty Minutes?
1: Uh was with Ed Bradley, and he was nice, actually, and he asked some really good questions that I wanted him to ask, uh, and and that had to do with the core issues I blew the whistle on, and even though they aired it uh, in a timely manner, and, and actually they re-aired it, they edited a lot of uh, good uh, main points of the interviews, which had to do with... The uh, Espionage operations within Pentagon and the State Department, for example, at the time Major Douglas Dickerson, and the fact that he was working for Douglas Hyde and Richard Pearl, all that was out and instead they chose to focus on uh, the whistleblower angle, the poor little whistleblower and and the war on terror and and the fact that you know FBI needs uh, better uh, you know more more money and and, and they don't have enough of they just made yeah. it a translator's issue in the FBI, rather than what the case was about, which mm-hmm. was the serious espionage operations that involved many well-known U.S. persons. Yeah. You know, some of them within the State Department. So it was basically edited and polished to reflect that. And I got stuck with that image, and I got stuck with that. Uh, with that. Uh, Basically, a uh, message for the case is like, oh, you're the person who blew the whistle on incompetence in FBI. And I'm like, no, that's not what I blew the whistle on. This is not what I, and this is not why they invoked the state secrets privilege, the government. Not because they were trying to cover up the incompetence in the FBI's uh, translations department. It had to do with this and this and this. But that did a lot of damage because then later yeah. people can come and say, well, this story expanded, and this is not what you said in, you know, during CBS 60 Minutes. It had to do with it in confidence. And I'm like, no, I said that, that tape was one and a half to two hours, okay? What they aired, the program, was 15 minutes. Out of that 15 minutes was maybe four minutes directly by me. There were senators who talked, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't make me look bad, but they made the case about something that this case was not about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, generally, I'm thinking, I have to say I'm a student of history also, and it's hard to do whistleblowing in a reactionary period when there's not much social struggle going on. And generally, the, co- the government has exaggerated power and is able to intimidate people into silence, including the media. And, um, and so that makes whistleblowing more difficult. Uh, I'm comparing, like, the present period with, say, the height of the Vietnam War, when you had hundreds of thousands of people marching in the street against the government, and that encouraged, um, you know, like people like Daniel Ellsberg to bring out the Pentagon Papers, and gave some backbone to a newspaper like the New York Times to actually publish it.
1: Absolutely.
0: That's an excellent point. So well, and it's it's also interesting, excuse yeah. me, both of you, um, uh, Dan Ellsberg is featured in a new documentary called The Most Dangerous Man in America. Sabella and I have both seen it, and uh, she has talked to Dan Ellsberg since that uh, was released. And uh, the, the two factors that we've touched on that were present for Ellsberg, that were not present for either of you, were that he did get help, from uh, members of both political parties, Republican Pete McCloskey and uh, Democrat Mike Gravel uh, went to great lengths to support Ellsberg in uh, releasing the Pentagon Papers. And then we had courageous media outlets, the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, and uh, they, were, they were supported by lesser newspapers around the country uh, right. when the New York Times defied the government's effort to prevent publication. And those are factors that are seriously deficient in the current context right
2: taking extending that thought um back then, what you had in the height of the Vietnam War was a split in the ruling parties, a split over the war, and that creates splits in the media, and people willing to come forward and and make statements against the government that they wouldn't otherwise have the guts to make and the The signature. The uh, uh, signif- significant factor in today's situation is there are not such splits that the two parties stand united on the issue of our time, and that is the wars, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There's no nobody, neither party is arguing for withdrawal. Uh, both parties defend why they why they might argue with each other over over trivial like. uh... The public option in the healthcare plan—they're um, united on the fundamentals. They're both parties want to continue this war. Both parties believe in the national security state surveillance and all the accoutrements of the apparatus that goes with that—you uh, know, government spying. There's no fundamental disagreements there, yeah. and so it's hard to crack a bureaucracy like that when there's, you know, no great social struggle in the streets, frankly.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a very powerful point. Now, Mark, uh, we talked earlier about the senior senator from California, Diane Feinstein, and the way that uh, she not only didn't support you, but actively undermined uh, your efforts. In your book, you said that Barbara Boxer, the other senator from California, uh, was interested and uh, did, uh, through a staffer, hear you out. And I wanted to ask, uh, because I took a signed copy of your book, Wiring Up the Big Brother Machine and Fighting It, to Senator Boxer in August of '09 this right. year, and I gave it to her with a greeting from you, <laughs> that uh, she was favorably mentioned in the book, yeah. and at the time I said, I want my Fourth Amendment rights back. And she kind of smiled in an uncomfortable way and looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the wiretapping continues, and uh, we need to remove the immunity from the phone companies, and we need to uh, come up with a, a, a clear legal structure for the assertion of mm. state secrets. Oh. And uh, she said, yeah, 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 and moved on. Uh, mm. So I wanted to know if there was any further contact between Senator Boxer's office and you after I delivered no. your book.
2: No. All, all Boxer did, and I mentioned in the book, is she invited me to a meeting of some of some of her supporters had an apartment in Washington where I got to give a little few minutes presentation on what I what I thought was going on with, with the surveillance. Um, she didn't help me beyond that, and frankly, I don't think she could because uh, she doesn't sit on the appropriate committees, which would give her the power to do anything. Mm-hmm. I think she's on, like, what, the environment?
0: Environment and yeah. maybe so, judiciary. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Anyway, I don't think she'd want to buck the leadership over this issue anyhow. Um, The one who did buck the leadership was Senator Dodd. um, But he got overridden. He stuck his neck out on it. Mm -hmm. For for his own personal background reasons. Um, But I think the point is that the Congress as a whole joined together united to cover up the NSA issue. That's basically what the Democrats did They joined with the Republicans to cover up this issue and kill the lawsuit. And in that, they're united just as they're united over the war, because the two issues are connected. Uh, the, The surveillance issue is a derivative of the war issue, and it's all tied together. And so long as the wars go on, this other stuff will go on. And there's no challenge to the war from the two parties, and that's the main problem we face in this country.
1: No, the real war that will never end is the perpetual war, is the war on terror. See, even if we were to get out of Iraq and we were to get out of Afghanistan, we are still in this war on terror, involved in this war on terror, which has basically gotten us into the Patriot Act and, and everything else that we are dealing with domestically, and that war, we can't withdraw from anywhere to, to, to get out of that. Well, war. that was the point That's of That's a perpetual war, isn't it?
2: That was the point of it, to create a permanent, unstoppable war atmosphere so they can get whatever they want. Um, nevertheless, it would help a lot if they actually withdrew troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. So there, there's absolutely no rationale left for either of those wars. Um, Everybody knows the Iraq War was based on a complete lie. And Afghanistan, you know what, it was supposed to get Osama bin Laden, and he's long gone. But the war goes on. It has a life of its own. Uh, and Obama continues it with this almost the same words that Bush uses. It's like um, a bunch of zombies continuing on the same path.
1: Well, many people are getting rich. From these wars,
2: yeah.
1: uh, I just was looking at this report issued by Project Censored, and uh, they listed the top ten senators and uh, congressmen and congresswomen who have invested the most in the military industrial complex, and I believe number two is uh, Senator Kerry, who has thirty eight million dollars invested in uh, wow. of his uh, investment uh, portfolio and um, military-industrial complex. And number four, I believe, is Jane uh, Harmon, uh, who has invested about eight-something million dollars. Mm-hmm. So there are people and there are uh, institutions that are really, really getting rich off the war. Yeah. And as far as the Congress goes, and this is why we stopped our congressional activities altogether in 2007, some people may consider it giving up or giving up too easily. But what we realized was only thing that moves these people is the lobbyists and the money poured into their pockets. When you look at the AT&T and the report issued by the Sunlight Foundation, uh, they were looking at Senator uh, you know, McCain, who had directly benefited by $390,000 uh, just from the telecom industry. And these are the people who have been and who had pushed the immunity for the telecom. And, and when you look at how much money is you know they're getting from the telecom industry and the related lobby. It becomes pretty simple and obvious. So with the whistleblower, and with these cases, it's like okay, that's the price. Let's say for McCain, three hundred ninety thousand dollars. If we can give McCain four hundred thousand dollars, and if we can give uh, Feinstein and Harmon each maybe hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars, you will see them maybe moving and doing something. Or am I right? or Am I wrong?
0: Well, let, let me just add to it, Sibel, that uh, three weeks after the Democratic-controlled House and Senate passed the immunity for the telecoms in the summer of 2008, let me just amend that. They didn't control the Senate at that time, but they did control the House. Uh, three weeks after that, the Democrats convened in Denver, and I was there for the uh, nominating convention. And on the very first night, there was a huge and very expensive party thrown for delegates and elected officials only. The media was not permitted to attend or even uh, observe the proceedings. And the host was AT&T. And the the credential lanyards that everybody wore at the DNC in the summer of 2008 had the AT&T logo all over them. So uh, was that a coincidence?
2: Well, certainly there's a lot of lobbyist money that helped... You know, past the uh, immunity. But there's also a general, a general um, feeling among the Congress that they've got to protect the intelligence agencies against any political embarrassments or illegalities. It's the same, because they don't want to delve into that. It would mean a huge split and a fight. That's why Obama does not want to um, go after the people at the top who uh, committed torture. Everybody knows now that torture has been committed by and sanctioned by the highest levels of government by Bush, by Cheney, Condoleezza Rice, and Donald Rumsfeld, and they get off. They're gone. Uh, nobody's going after them, and so that creates a whole atmosphere among Congress. They're protecting all their buddies. You know they they all cover for each other, right? And so. If they're impervious to any, any attempt to get at the root of this problem, uh, frankly, I, I don't want to get into it sounding too hopeless, but I, I don't see a solution to this through the two parties. They're too vested in, in the current institutions, and the, and the keeping things going as they are.
0: Well, and there's no way for us to revise the campaign finance system without their approval.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have control <laughs> of the screws. They have control. You know, 50, 60 years ago, you'd say, oh, well, we can fix this. We'll go to a Congress, we'll get a hearing, and they'll pass a law to fix it. Well, now we know Congress is in, is in the same boat with all the culprits here, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so who do you go to? What's left?
1: So what happened to the government of the people, for the people, by the people, then, Mark?
2: Well, that's the problem that we face. I don't. I think we need some uh, a new... Political party based yes. on based on working people and unions. I'm a unionist uh, to revive. You know, um, as a counterweight to this government's apparatus, which seems to have its fingers and everything,
1: establishment. And I have a I have a phrase for it: two sides of the same coin with the two party system.
2: Yeah, uh, it's shocking. Everybody's shocked now. I wasn't one of the people. Who, Supported Obama, uh, I I didn't have either. I didn't, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, uh, but the ones who did are sorely disappointed now. You can see because on every issue, he's taken up not just wiretapping surveillance, but education, healthcare. He's taken the right wing position. You know, education he's for charter schools, uh, healthcare he's for giving insurance companies what they want. Um, you know, you can go down the line. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, he's been at least consistent with his record, because before he was elected, that's exactly where he stood on these issues, didn't he?
2: Yeah, well, that's the funny thing. I think he fooled people. I, I, I think if you want to figure him out on a personal level, I, he seems to be really a conservative, dressed up as a liberal a liberal for elections purposes. Uh but he really thinks like a conservative
1: or um, he's told to act as conservative it, it comes down to their establishment people are they the decision makers or do we have well, what we refer to in other countries third world countries as the deep state and you're looking at the vested interests, and you're looking at you know, the uh, right is he the man who makes a decision is he really
2: well the bottom line is we get the same results so there's something wrong here <laughs> um, after a certain point, it doesn't matter how he justifies it in his own mind. He produces the same, more or less the same stuff that Bush did. He just doesn't use the same words. He gives cleverer and more intelligent speeches.
1: But let's not get the people off the hook here, because how about the people and their responsibility? Do we really deserve this? Because I think maybe we do. Because a lot of it happens to depend on us, and You look at this latest case with the uh, Electronic Frontier uh, Foundation Mm -hmm. and this bogus subpoena case. In this case, the the Department of Justice uh, served their national security letters to this uh, alternative media site, uh, US, and uh, the person who happened to be in charge did not go along with the gag order. She ran to the EFF. And presented them with this, and they said she said, "Okay, this is what I got and now a subpoena is coming from uh, from the court and uh e f f took the case, challenged it, and they won yeah. uh the judge declared it bogus. the Department of Justice backed down all because this one person, this woman, decided not to comply with unconstitutional unconstitutional un american gag provision." And an order, national security letters, but she is one of the four who have publicly, you know, people who have received these letters but have come out publicly, challenged the gag orders and won. Three librarians and and this lady. So what happens to thousands of people who are receiving these letters? They are complying quietly. They are turning over documents and they are sitting and complying with gag orders. How American is that?
2: Well, they're scared, obviously.
1: Well, they are, and if they are, and if they don't believe that their constitution is there to protect them, if they believe this is how things are, and if they accept it, whether it's fear, whether it's intimidation, then do we say, well, then they deserve it? Because that's the story of every nation that falls into dictatorship or into a police state, it's the people complying with it, whether it's because they are driven by economic factors or from fear factors, the terrorist factors. But then do we say, well, maybe we deserve it as a nation. Otherwise we'll be revolting right now. We'll have a revolution.
2: Well I I can there's an understandable fear. I wouldn't want to put too much blame on people for not wanting to not wanting to risk their job or what have you. It needs to be independent organization outside of the government, people feel more confident to come forward and challenge things if they feel an organization is behind them. And I think that's what's needed: independent organizations to protest these things. Uh, that's why it's important to have groups like the EFF, and I think that's why it's important to have unions too. Uh, uh, I was glad to have you know you're in the you in a workplace. When the boss does stuff to challenge your 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 rights in the workplace, like like listening in on your phone conversations, which happens at AT and T and other places, you had a union to go to, and if you don't have a union, you you feel much more isolated, and it's much more scary to try to challenge that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Mark, I have a few questions sent to me by. Uh... Yeah. Richard Scott Ishmael, a.k.a. Ishmael, who writes for our website. He's a partner contributor. And I'm just going to go through some of these questions, if it's okay with you.
3: Sure. See if
1: there are any of these questions you can answer. Uh, one question he has is, Where any dedicated domestic circuits routed through to the, UN, to the NSA rooms, to his knowledge, to your knowledge?
2: Were any dedicated
1: domestic what? circuits routed through the NSA rooms?
2: Well, that's part of what I expose in, in the book is that uh, there were very specific circuits, um, um, fiber optic circuits, that, that were routed into the uh, NSA room. I named some of them. Some of them were circuits that go to other companies, They connect AT&T to other companies, what they called peering, peering links, and that's what shows that they were tapping into the whole Internet.
1: Okay. And another question has to do with these designated terminal office locations and whether you have any knowledge of similar rooms constructed in township offices like Oakland, Newhall, or others.
0: Oakland, Newhall. What he, what he wrote here is that the offices that you listed, the uh, some 20 different offices yeah. where you either believe or know that there yeah. were uh, splitters, that uh, he describes them all as terminal office locations, and I don't really know the difference between a terminal office and a transship office.
2: I'm not sure what he's getting at, so I can't answer it. Uh, I I don't know the other locations of the offices except the ones that I named in my book, the uh, locations where there are secret rooms. Mm -hmm. And I only had my hand on a small piece of this obviously huge surveillance apparatus, So I can't claim to be an expert on where they've tapped into things, except to show that they obviously were trying to collect a lot of domestic traffic. That's clear from the documents. And I saw his posting on on your website, and I made that point in my book that, that if they wanted to just collect international traffic, they could have had just a much more much smaller, minimal um, installation near cable stations. But instead, they put it in, in major cities where they would collect a lot of domestic traffic automatically, which leads me to conclude that this surveillance was designed for domestic surveillance.
0: And it might surprise people to know that the international traffic that comes in um, uh, on the cables, the undersea cables, terminate in two specific locations, one in New Jersey and one near San Luis Obispo, California. So those are easy terminal points for them to access if their goal was simply to intercept international traffic.
2: That's right. That's a major point that I made in my book and Bamford, James Bamford made in his book, that this gives a lie to the whole Bush Bush line and now the Obama line that they're just looking at international communication. No, they're collecting domestic traffic um, automatically.
1: And one last question from Ishmael. What yeah. is your take on the NSA's parallel National national Traffic Control Center?
0: And that's parallel to the phone companies I think he's referring to.
2: I think Bamford would be better to answer that. They seem to be building centers near major data data um, collection points. Like the one in Texas is near uh, some Microsoft center.
3: Right.
2: Um, so, you know, they're trying to... They do the same when they collect international stuff. They set up collection points near um, uh, um, satellite stations mm-hmm. so that they can collect just by the overflow um when a satellite beams down to a cable to a ground station they they can collect the same information coming from the satellite that's how they spy on satellite communications that's easier than trying to pry open fiber optic cable
0: and and one little factoid that uh, may be helpful to some of our listeners is that one of the reasons why the NSA needed to use these fiber intercepts, these splitters and diversions of the fiber optic traffic, is that over the last 20 years, a lot of communications that used to be beamed uh, from here to other parts of the world by satellite has gone to cables, and it's because of the the speed of fiber optics and the huge capacity, and this created a problem for the NSA, which was uh, set up. Under the old system, to intercept these satellite-delivered communications,
2: right. But even so, like I say, they didn't have to. They didn't have to tap into the cables in various cities if they only wanted international traffic. I think that was just a story they put out
3: because mm-hmm.
2: they want more than just international traffic. They wanted the domestic traffic, is my opinion. That's the uh, revelation of the of the of the documents, I believe.
0: Now, now on that score, Mark, I wanted to ask you a question based on a new book that's just been published. I just got a copy today. It's written by a man named Matthew Aid, A-I-D, and it's called The Secret Century, right. The Untold History of the National Security Agency. Yeah. And you told me you've already gotten a copy and uh, read a good bit of it. Yeah, I read it. So I want to ask you this, because he, he cites a Washington Post article. Uh, and uh, also an interview with the El Paso Times given by Mike McConnell, who was the director of national intelligence at the time. And he said the number of NSA eavesdropping targets in the United States was 100 or less. Is there any way that could be true?
2: I think I pick up that issue in my book. It's a matter of how they define eavesdropping. They have a... They have the lawyers parse this out to see. And the NSA has long said it's not eavesdropping until they actually make a transcription for human eyes to read.
0: So it's an intercept.
2: So if it's merely intercepted automatically by a computer and put in a data bank, it's not considered eavesdropping by them unless they go into the data bank and then say, give me all the emails of Mark Klein printed out so I can read them. Then it's eavesdropping. See, it's a lawyer's trick.
0: Um, and in James Bamford's book, Shadow Factory, he interviews several of the people who were working for NSA yeah. who actually monitored these calls. They were the eavesdroppers. Right. And based on the implications, uh, they, they don't talk about numbers specifically, but just based on the level of traffic, and the details that they provided, it's flatly impossible to say that less than 100 Americans were eavesdropped upon in this country. That that simply cannot be true.
2: Yeah, I think it's even more, certainly more than that, even if you don't count the ones that were just copied without look, being heard, because they have, like, like Bamford relates, they have these uh, centers where experts sit down and... Uh, Listen to uh well, I think uh Cybele Edmonds did some of that, right? Uh she, you listen, they they got it up you call it up and you get all these channels and they can just listen every day to the traffic going across and if they find something is interesting they can record it and uh listen to it later uh for further analysis. Certainly there's more than a hundred just randomly doing that. They might be talking about ones that they, so you don't know how they define this, but it sounds like they're talking about ones that they are definitely tracking and have a FISA warrant for, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So
2: maybe there's only a hundred of them on any given day. Who,
0: who knows? Well, but but the FISA court raw numbers uh, don't don't match that either. I know,
2: right? <laughs> they're always the point is they're always trying to minimize the the scale and size of this thing, and I knew from what the physical apparatus they were doing there, that if you consider eavesdropping, simply copying people's information, they were getting billions of messages every day of the year, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that doesn't square with 100 people, right?
0: Well, the, the other piece that we touched on earlier yeah. is data mining that started with the Pentagon's total information awareness. And in this book, Mr. Aid uh, talks about... A White House it says the White House has refused to acknowledge NSA's parallel data mining program, codenamed Stellar Wind, which sifts through vast uh, amounts of electronic data secretly provided by America's largest telecommunications companies and Internet service providers. And so, with that data mining and with the massive intercept, the collection of telephone calls and emails, then uh, that leads to the so-called eavesdropping, the actual monitoring of the intercepted communications. And again, uh, the information we have about the scope of this does not square in any way, shape, or form with the minimal descriptions offered by people like Mike McConnell.
2: Yeah, there was another one I think I quoted in my book from the New York Times saying they only listened to 500 emails and phone calls at any one time or something like that and that too didn't square with anything that i <laughs> um and it was just like i said they're trying to minimize trying to make it sound innocent that's why under bush they were named, trying to make it sound like they were only talking about people who call the middle call the middle east And everybody breathes a sigh of relief, thinking, well, I don't call the Middle East, so I don't need to worry about it. right?" But they're clearly trying to mislead people as to the scale of this thing, because it's so huge.
0: Well, Mark Klein, I want to thank you for joining us today on The Boiling Frogs. And I want to recommend your book, Wiring Up the Big Brother Machine and Fighting It. You self-published it, and people can get it at Amazon.com. It's out in soft cover, and I think it's a, a very important document that people should uh, own and read carefully. And as we close, what would you like to share with our listeners about the experiences you've been through the last five years?
2: I don't know what to say except uh, keep your eye on what this government is doing because it's it's not over yet. <laughs> um, this government's continuing the same practices and defending them and extending them. And uh, I think it's rooted in this war, or the wars, I should say, it's plural, and um, the fight goes on.
0: Mark, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really proud to know you, and I applaud the courage that you've shown to uh, expose as much as you can to the American public.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here.
3: Give me absolute control over every living soul And that sand baby That's an order Take the one entry that's left Studge it up the hole in your culture Give me a bag of burning wall
1: Give me a style Leo Cohen and the future. The future. Well, that depends on us. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with more Boiling Frogs interviews.